My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. And it felt almost um, like being in a really dark place for several years and then suddenly getting to the end and the light, we came through that tunnel and we could see the light and I suddenly, and then that really took off my property development career. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Torrin Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with the director of the Pink Heart Hat, Louise Fitzgerald Baker. She's a jack of all trades in the world of property and will share how she developed $42 million worth of properties in just 10 years. As well as this, she will share her passion behind uplifting women and helping them create their own income streams. Throughout her career, Fitzgerald Baker has pursued various opportunities. This has made for some extraordinary experiences. I'm from the pink hard hat and I'm a property investor, real estate agent and property developer and general entrepreneur. I've written books and uh, speak and so I've done a few things um, around and with property throughout my career so far. It took a lot of hard work for Fitzgerald Baker to achieve this success but it was worth it. She's now able to live her decide everyday life. It's taken me uh, a while to build a life like this, but now I've built a, an office beside my house as part of one part of the house. And so, once I go to work, I'm in a beautiful room which out, looks over the water, and I've got a sofa beside me. And what I do on a daily basis is I do a lot of writing, coaching, speaking, um, managing properties, and researching and So some of that involves meeting with people and some of it involves being in my own space. But it's been fairly deliberately orchestrated to have this. It hasn't been the way my career's been all my life. You know, there's been times I've had a team of people, but in this chapter, this is what I have now. It's really been a life, it's been an opportunity to create the world I wanted to work within. So I I work around my life and, and, and rather than, you know, live around my work and it's been really deliberate. So the space I work with, uh, the diffuser I've got on, the music that I'm listening to, the cat sleeping beside me, you know, the dog behind me, you know, you know, the, I've got the wallabies jumping in front of the, you know, in the view out to the, to the landscape. And so it's really deliberate. It's a space that I can be creative and I can carefully orchestrate the life I'm, I'm designing. 
Fitzgerald Baker is clearly a very strong woman, which is a trait that she saw from her mother while growing up. I'm the youngest of five children. I grew up in Melbourne and my life changed dramatically at the age of two. So my... Uh, my father walked out the door and unfortunately never returned. He was killed in a car accident, leaving my mother widowed with five kids under 12 to look after. And for a little person, I guess you just realised one walked out and then quite shortly after it, my mother was faced with a very similar dilemma. So in her case, she had a serious choice to make. Without any insurance, she was financially destitute um, when he passed away so suddenly. He was only 40 and she was 38. And she'd never written a cheque in her life. So um, on top of having to deal with the grief, she was faced with, with a terrible choice that no one should really have to make, and that is, Mary, you have three options. You either uh, go on the pension, and frankly, who, who would blame you? You um, abort, you know, essentially stop everything. Your, you know, her husband had three menswear shops and quite uh, and a half-built house in Middle Brighton in Victoria, in a really nice suburb. And they sort of said, look, just stop everything, sell out, and and um, and possibly even separate the kids to give yourself a fighting chance to be able to bring them up. And she decided. 12 hours later, to drive to work and take over his, you know, the family businesses, having never written a cheque in her life. And so for a little person, for all of us, our lives shifted very, very dramatically. And, you know, we got to see, I guess, a front row view of a woman faced with a circumstance none of us should ever hope, ever want to be in. But how she recovered her position and grew through that was an amazing testimony. And so that was really, I guess, my beginning. I'm the youngest of those kids uh, with three brothers and a twin sister. And part of that was her negotiation of both life and the role that money played in that. The strength that her mum displayed throughout this unfortunate time is something that has stuck with Fitzgerald Baker and taught her priceless lessons. I think, you know, all your memories are really just of that one key person who's pivotal. But mum would go to work at about 6.30 in the morning and then she'd be home at 6 at night. And we suddenly had a house that changed in regards to the the, the people involved in it. So where she was a stay-at-home Catholic housewife before, she now became a working mum and literally overnight. And my aunt and uncle and grandparents were involved in helping care for us. The boys about a couple of years later were sent to boarding school. And so it was just Julie and I. And so it was, it was I guess you know nothing else as you grow up and into that. Um, but as the years went on, we continued to see a working mum a very hard-working mum and she learned business the hard way in the 70s. Um, there weren't that many women in business, let alone menswear. Uh, she got ripped off left, right and centre and so it was really a school of hard knocks but it didn't get her down. You know, her attitude, mindset and her ability to grow through it was just profound and I think she passed that on to all of the kids. Um, you know, it's no accident that... Um, the majority of the, the children turned out to be self-made millionaires, 
um, and very, very entrepreneurial, each of us, in very different ways. So, um, and I think that a lot of what she passed on to us is was really the idea that it's not what happens to you, it is really what you do with life. This experience also taught Fitzgerald Baker and her family the importance of financial security. My brothers all, you know, were teenage and six years older and they all went to, they finished year 12 and were required to. Then in the school holidays, we'd all have roles in the family businesses. She went from menswear to tax lottos and property was also something she became involved with passively as an investor. And it was just expected that, you know, as she did, we would all grow up and buy multiple properties as a means of an underpinning of security for our life. And I think she really did pass on a sense to us that, oh, my gosh, you know, money can't protect you, but it can insulate you. And I know myself that had she had a financial cushioning, then her choices would have been different in the aftermath of my father's untimely death. So I think for all of us there was a sense that, Money's not a panacea, it can't solve life's problems, but should you hit a snag, then it can cushion the fall and certainly stop that downward spiral getting any worse. And so we really took that on to see the importance that income can play in life's recovery when when things don't go to plan. Fortunately, Fitzgerald Baker had a great experience at school and went on to further her education at university. I was good at school. School loved me and I loved it. I was one of those kids that had kind of a photographic memory and I had a really good time. You know, I was into the sports and I loved the whole idea of school. I I enjoyed it. Um, And then I went on to uni as my twin did. So the girls in the family, we were the first really to go to university. Prior to that, it wasn't such an expectation for that generation before us, really. But by the time we came along um, and we were finishing school in the late 80s, it was really expected that you'd go on to uni. And not knowing really what I wanted to do, I did a double major in communications and major in marketing. I kept my options open. From here, Fitzgerald Baker launched into a remarkable career. I went into market research, fast-moving consumer goods and using brands and buyer behaviour to be able to orchestrate and sell products and it was something I really loved. The psychology of, of sales through the way a product was pitched or presented to the market was fascinating because it involved business, marketing and psychology. And so I did that for several years before um, having an opportunity to work in a free trade zone, Australia's only free trade zone in the Northern Territory with a former vice chancellor of the university. He said, put your money where your mouth is, Louise. If you're any good at marketing, I'll throw you this curveball. And he threw me um, an opportunity to work in a free trade zone that was 22% occupied <laughs> and my job as the marketing manager was to obviously fill those places and within about a year and a half we got it to 98% capacity and we became uh, you know the, an amazing uh, testimony for uh, free trade zones both in this country and then overseas and then I ended up doing a bit of secondment work in, in Southeast Asia, had a great time in Darwin in, in the 90s and uh, went on to work for the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory, who's like one of the premiers in, in one of the other other states. And when he was presiding over a $2 billion 
budget and I got to do work in regards to the research side. So I've had a really colourful academic and business experience before uh, taking on the property side and falling into that space many years later. Throughout her time in the Northern Territory, Fitzgerald Baker met her husband and embarked on a personal journey. I met my husband up in the Northern Territory and we ended up coming back to Sydney. He was working on TV news and then we moved to Canberra and then Brisbane. And when we got to Brisbane, that was where I had my children. Oh, no, when we got to Canberra, I, I had children. And, uh, and then once we hit Brisbane, that's when essentially the kids started going to school. So I always worked, you know, I, I uh, while the kids were young, I worked part-time in whatever I was doing. And I reacquainted myself with the way that I would generate income. I became more imaginative in the way I would let money work for me because suddenly I had these little people that I had to fit my life around and it was no longer my choice to, you know, to leave five days a week and not see them. So I had to come up with different ways to generate money so that I could build the lifestyle we were looking to create but at the same time raise these gorgeous kids. Now, let's go back in time and explore how Fitzgerald Baker got into property investment. I had always really had an interest in property because I'd watched my mother be an investor for many years and a landlady and and I had seen that that was really the expectation, not to just to have your own home, of course, but to have multiple income streams working for you. And in that time, property was a means to an end for an income stream. I mean, these days, and I can get onto that a bit later, but these days, there's many, many more choices out there that I didn't have back in, say, the 80s. But as soon as I was able, in in, the, in my 20s, I, I bought my first house and, you know, I bought several properties along the way and then just began to build a little portfolio quietly on the side. It became harder to do once we had kids and we were down in income and obviously things became, it, it, I had to become a little more cognizant of, of income and, and, and holding these properties and some of them were positively geared but not by a much and so we had to think differently. And there was one point at which um, my husband who was a closet soldier actually, very, very noble but but inconvenient. Um, he would often be called to theatres of war all over the world. And as much as that was an amazing and generous experience of him to go, it was also fraught with a lot of danger. And I remember thinking, as much you know, that it was financially rewarding for him to leave for four to six months, but. Uh, not the way I wanted to raise my family and there must be another way. And that's when I thought I think it's time that I gave this a shot. By the time I'd moved to Brisbane, I had studied, got my real estate licence and had thrown myself into property and was surrounded by property people anyway. But I'd never really stepped from investing to developing until that point when I thought, you know what, I want to give this a shot myself. Closet soldier is not a term that you hear every day. Let's explore what it means. It's a bit of a joke. Um, he's a reservist. He's an army reservist. So that meant I married a reporter and had no idea that this little job on the side where he would occasionally go off and soldier would have been, sold, you know, doing his soldiering would have 
been an interruption to our lives later on. So little did I know that every time there was a conflict across the world, he would get invited, not conscripted, but invited to participate and disappear and disappear. And and sometimes, you know, in, in really quite dangerous places where communication would be cut off. And so it's it's that was not a lifestyle I I imagined I'd see myself in, in places where suddenly I'm raising the kids really alone and having to think about the basics of, well, what if he doesn't come back you know, and and how does that leave me? So there was there was that, I, I say tongue-in-cheek closet soldier, but essentially it's not like I married um, a soldier on an army base and had the support of a whole base and uh, free dental and healthcare and all of that to, to cushion me. I was essentially a mum in the suburbs with a husband that would disappear for months on end in places where he he may not ultimately return. So, and he was a he was a very conscientious participant in that. Just like if you are married to a fireman um, and it's Christmas and a fire there are fires across the country, they disappear, and and that cause is always going to be bigger than than what's going on at home and that's what you that's what you that's what you become part of whether you realize it or not but I didn't really realize that the guy I married was a tv reporter he you know he would come home every night so uh I I guess I got I got like got a little surprise along the way where I thought gosh this is this is working out a little differently to I to how I imagined and one of the compelling components beyond his his worldview, which is very generous and and, and very much big picture, um, and he's got a real social conscience, was the idea that, of course, we were remunerated well for him disappearing. So I guess there was a small part of me that went, if I could insulate us financially, then maybe he wouldn't disappear quite so much. In hopes to create financial cushioning and keep her husband home, Fitzgerald Baker took a leap of faith and jumped into property development. That was really where I said to him, you know, I really want to give this 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 investing, take it to a next level and, and have a go at developing. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, look, I want to buy these the couple of houses and knock them down and, and build some townhouses. And he said, well, what's, you know, what's the worst that can happen? And I said, well, you know, the worst is we lose everything, everything, the house, all our life savings, everything. And he said, okay, let's go. He said, you've got, you've got my blessing, you know, and he really, you really do need your partner um, to back you on, on something like that because property is not, property um, development is not for the faint-hearted. Property investment, different kettle of fish. You can set and forget, sit on it, much like you might do shares, you know, know, blue chip shares. You can sit on it um, and and really over the course of time, the likelihood that you're going to really lose a lot of money is unlikely. You know, you just buy steady, you do your research, you buy well, and you set and forget and then you just manage the numbers on the way through and then hopefully with the uplift and capital growth, you compensated well for t- over time. But, but property um, development is a whole different kettle of fish. You really, you know, in my experience, 
A third of developers make excellent, excellent income. A third, for all their time, effort, sweat and tears, will probably break even and a third will lose money of varying levels they will lose. And that's they're not the ratios you hear in the world. If you look at Property Investor Magazine, it's everyone's a winner. <laughs> but, but in real life, when you're out there, you see quite differently. It's not a fool's game and you have to have the stomach for it. Fitzgerald Baker says that you need to have a stomach for property development and sometimes this can be taken literally. I was actually buying some property for some clients. So I was a buyer's agent for them. I'm not sure. And, and essentially, um, we had we had scoped the market. They were looking for a house and they had instructed me to buy this particular house for $450,000 at the time. And this is probably not my worst moment, but this is, I guess, just an example of what it can be like for certain people as they get their head around property. And I guess I realised that not everyone has the stomach for it. So on this particular occasion, we'd done the research they had recently missed out on a property down the road in the suburb. And so the instruction was clear. It was Louise, go in, secure the property at 450 and do it today. And I said, look, my, my advice is, to, you know, I, I, I don't think that's in your best interest. I think you can get it for better than that. And on this particular occasion, it was going to auction and I suggested that we go and bid at the auction. So, of course, we attended the auction and... I said, look, my expectation and hope is that we can get it for you between 4.20 and 4.30. And on that particular day, we went to the auction, we bid, we bid to 4.20, it got handed in and the negotiation was with us. And that strategy was fairly deliberate so that we would be the first and only people that would come to at that point to begin the negotiations post, you know, post the purchase. And on that particular day, we ended up securing that property and getting that for them at $420,000. And it was so funny because in these people were not with me. They were over the phone and I was relaying to them the strategy, which was essentially we're bidding, we're bidding to $420,000, we are stopping, we're stopping, we are now negotiating and we are pausing and in that time, had, I hadn't realised that one of the parties on the other end of the call was vomiting, <laughs> literally just vomiting with grief and despair and anguish and pain. And I remember saying to him at the time, you know, when his wife was saying, you know, don't tell anyone, <laughs> it's just not happening really well. Um uh, and later on, we had a giggle about it because, of course, you know, they got it 30 under what their instruction was. But but um, I just said, oh, remind me never to do property development with you guys because, you know, you just wouldn't have the stomach for it. So some people just don't have the stomach for or the risk or the appetite for that type of negotiation because sometimes you do have your heart in your throat. And I remember on one day, on one occasion, um, same sort of thing on a bigger scale where I was securing my own property and I was standing firm at a price and it was an excellent price and the seller ended up standing firmer and basically declined 
the, the sale, basically decided not to sign a contract. And it really can come down to he who blinks first because um, it, it, it was really who wants this more. And in, in the case where all the, all the evidence was suggesting that he should have signed this at that price with those terms, he just said no. And sometimes you can't know what the other party's doing in a negotiation. So that that there's just some funny times where you just have your moments where your heart's in your throat and you can't control who's on the other end of the phone or who's on the other side of the contract and how they're going to respond to your position, your bluff or your move. Property development can almost be described as a game of poker. It can be. In fact, you know, I think the song, um, you know, Kenny Rogers' song, The Gambler, you've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away and know when to run, really. (laughs) It comes into the game. It comes into the game because you do need to know when to walk away and when to run. And I've had to hold them, fold them, walk away and run in, in every deal. That You have to make a call fairly decisively and say, I'm walking away at this point or I'm out and just, you know, not looking back because you can't second guess yourself. You have to be clear enough to know your strategy, stick to your strategy and not get emotional about property. Over her time developing, Fitzgerald Baker has had some experiences where everything did not go to plan. We have one project, for instance, where the the criteria, we just had, we had a series of three things go wrong and I find that you can normally take one or maybe two hits if you're good, Tyrone, but if you get three, it can be really tricky. And on this one, it was actually a small project. It should have been straightforward. It was a little four-pack in in an area where it was zoned for uh, development. It was zoned for low to medium residential and so it should have been really straightforward. But on this particular ca- occasion, we had 50 submitters against us. <laughs> one, guy, one guy had letter drop, letterbox dropped the plans to everyone in the locality and actually door knocked and ended up getting a a series of, of, of marks against us, which was just unprecedented. And actually, the law really wasn't in their favour because it's not as though we were changing the zoning. We were completely compliant in everything we were doing. But that was the first strike where we had it, it took time just to go through a process that we hadn't scoped, envisaged, or imagined, or even um, allowed for financially. And even though there was no jeopardy there, there was no real sense that we wouldn't get it through. It was just the time and the interruption. And then the second thing that happened was when the conditions came through, they they were arduous. So council had decided that they were going to increase the compliance on this particular block and what they did was they required a level of engineering that was disproportionate (laughs) to the size of this development. It had culverts under the ground that you might see in major engineering feats but on this particular four-pack with no particular slope, it was completely disproportionate and overscoped. And that was the second thing. And we probably hadn't seen it. We didn't have the experience. This was early on in my career. We didn't have the experience to truly understand what compliant 
com- uh, engineering compliance on that scale would have cost and looked like. And the third thing that happened, it was a time in Queensland where they decided to change the contributions. So the the taxes that you pay went from fifteen thousand a box to twenty eight thousand a box overnight. It would have hurt. It did hurt. So we really had a a triple whammy on that little tiny deal. And when you're doing 20 or 30 or four, different. But when you've got four, your margin of error is very small. So on that particular project, we could have sustained one hit or two, but as I said, three was really quite tricky, you know, and, and that was an occasion where we really had to manage our position to get the project done, delivered, sold and just move on. As a result of these setbacks, Fitzgerald Baker only made a small profit. It was probably $11,000 or something. But that my job really became, in the end, not losing money. That really became the task because the odds were against us. The market was flat. Our costs had gone up and we were releasing. We didn't have the... We didn't have the favour of a running market. And really, the market can be very forgiving. So in you could sustain a few hits like that if you're in parts of this country where the market was just running at the time and you had the opportunity of capital growth to be able to fall back on. But we had a static market to release to. And so the, uh, the, the deal then became making sure we and the investors involved didn't lose anything. Having said that, it was years of my life that we didn't get compensated for. Mm. Fortunately, we don't have many like that, but when it happens, you just have to be decisive and strategic in your approach and not unemotional. As well as some rocky experiences, Fitzgerald Baker also has numerous success stories from her time developing property. I don't think there's ever been a deal where everything just clicked. I think there was one occasion where we were doing 12 units on a site and I really, as a boutique developer, I was very careful in my design phase. I would always, coming from a market research background, I would anticipate trends that were not here yet and build for what was to come and not currently in the market rather than copying what was already there. And on this particular block, they had the most beautiful Ponciana tree to the front. And I remember, and we had the ability and permission to remove it, but I remember thinking, oh, it'd be so beautiful though if we kept it. And some of my colleagues were saying, you're mad, you're mad, you know, you could have really... You could squeeze a few more units on that block, you know, keeping the tree. It's too sentimental. You're thinking with your heart, not with your head. However, I couldn't bring myself to remove this beautiful 80-year-old Ponciana tree with bright orange flowers. So we des- I designed the, prop- the project around it. We had an 11-metre setback, not a 6-metre setback, and we went to council, council cap in hand and said, we, we really want to keep the tree. Would you give us a relaxation on the number we can put behind it so that we're not penalised for keeping the tree? And they really came to the party. They saw the sentimentality of what I was trying to achieve and they really applauded it. And so we built this block of units 
townhouse well yeah they were essentially units but with large gardens for the ones to the front almost like townhouses and it was only three stories but essentially around this beautiful tree and we used the color schemes to contrast so it was a dark blue so that it could help that it would it with against the orange flowers it would just pop and the council loved it the our clients the buyers loved it and it just it's been timeless and has held the test of time so yeah that was probably an example where everything just came together beautifully and seamlessly although Fitzgerald Baker had no obligation to keep the tree she knew it would be an asset to a project and fought to keep it was a refreshing and untested terrain actually to go to council and say this is the design we'd like to put in and do we have your blessing to do so but what we needed from them was in in not building further forward could we still create the design using the space that we had left and would they would they allow that to happen? And in this particular case, the council really loved it. They said, we see what you're trying to achieve. It's boutique, it's different, it's it's beautiful. So yes, we, we will allow you to, to save the tree, do an 11 metre setback, give you the, that relaxation, but give you the ability to do the number of units you would have had otherwise. And so, that was a real lesson in there are sometimes human beings on the other side. You know, sometimes we can we can assume that as property people that we're on one side of the fence and councils on the other and it can feel a little adversarial sometimes. But I have found that if you have the right intentions then and, and you're able to articulate clearly what you're trying to achieve and you speak to the the people that have a similar philosophy to you they can listen, which has been really refreshing. Coming up after the break, we'll explore the details of how Fitzgerald Baker got into property development. I was reading Property Investor magazine uh, cover to cover every month that it came out and would study it and read it. We'll hear about the deal that kicked off a property development career. And that really took off my property development careers. Fitzgerald Baker will share the value of having a routine. I do the same things every day. I think consistency is helpful in a world that can be strategic and change quickly. And that's next. I'm Taran Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Let's be real, deals that can yield 20 to 30% per annum do exist. Don't believe me? Well, here's a story about property development I invested in Victoria. This developer had the project fully funded beforehand, but he and his family suffered a loss, a circumstance that led him to be unable to proceed with the development. So, I stepped in and in two weeks, we funded the shortfall, allowing for the development to continue. Five months later, the development was refinanced and we received our funds back with interest. Yes, there are amazing opportunities in the property market like this one. So, do you want to get a better return with lower risk on your money? 
then register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. We've heard about why Fitzgerald Baker decided to get into property development. Now, let's explore the strategy that she used when taking those first steps. I was reading Property Investor magazine cover to cover every month that it came out and would study it and read it and then I'd go to a lot of auctions and watch the property prices and I studied the market for eight months before I bought my first property. I was hellishly conservative. I had a lot to lose so I wasn't going to bet the house uh, unless I felt really confident that the market would be supportive of what I was trying to achieve and then I think I got to the stage where I just thought, I feel I know intellectually everything that I can probably know about this. I now really need to throw myself in and just do it because it's a bit like you can read about what a cake tastes like, you can see pictures of it, but unless you bite into it, you really can't say you've had an experience of what that tastes like. And it's a little bit the same. You can you can devour as many magazines and journals and articles and blogs and vlogs and, and turn yourself inside out. But at some point, you just have to play. And that was really where I got to. And that's really with his blessing. And We've been tested over the years. There's been the old project where We've had to look at each other and he's gone, yep, okay, we'll ride this through. So we, you need you need that support because it would be terrible for a party to be a fair weather friend where they just say, yes, I'll support you and if you win and if you don't, I'll remind you of it every other day. That would not be fun at all. So you just have to make sure that you're either playing with money that you are prepared not wanting but prepared to potentially lose if you're going to go into property development. Um, No one ever expects to but you just have to be mindful of the risk and not everyone has that appetite. Not everyone has an appetite for risk but as I said, back in those days, property was the vehicle to be able to catapult your position from just surviving to actually getting ahead and that's really why I chose it because it was familiar to me, it made sense and it was an avenue that I'd seen could take you from survival to thriving and that's really where I wanted to be. Whereas these days, as you know, there's a lot of other vehicles. There are online businesses, direct selling, virtual franchising, affiliate marketing. There's so many other ways that you can generate cash flow from home and in your own time and space. But back in the days that in the 80s, when, you know, 90s, um, when, and when really when I started developing was really 2007, it, it wasn't it wasn't like that. We didn't have that many avenues. So I had to just play with the chips that I was dealt. After doing research for eight months, how did Fitzgerald Bacon know it was the right time to jump into the market? I had done my research. I bought two prop I bought two I had two houses side by side, three Ks from the city. I thought, well, they're not going to go down in value. And they were already zoned low to medium residential. So I knew I could do something with it. So my first point was uh, getting my foot on it, getting a sense of what was possible, finding through town planners what, what is possible and probable for that block. And then once I got a sense of the price, then I the first part was just getting my foot on it. So securing it under contract with a clause that would give me the ability to do my due diligence safely, but secure the 
secure the deal in the meantime. And at the time I had a one and a half year old and a five and a half year old and a seven, seven year old. And so I remember being there with the baby when we were doing this deal and it was really, you don't know what you don't know sometimes, Tyrone. Like looking back, it was a really gutsy move. But at the time, I remember thinking, this really would work. You know, I can't see a reason why it can't work. I've done my research. It's three k's from the city. It's zoned accordingly. I think it's really got a 99% chance of doing very well for us. And so what followed on that particular deal, it was a... It wasn't seamless, but it, it, it was a three-year project. Uh, a lot went right and a lot went wrong, and it changed my life at the end of it. Having the guts to make this deal is a decision that changed Fitzgerald Baker's life. So I didn't know what I didn't know. It was 2007. It was a high point in the market in Brisbane. It was three k's from the city, and it was um, a property along the rail line. And it was two houses. One was really a ramshackle house that had to be pulled down and was an eyesore to the front. And then there was quite a lovelier house to the back, which I moved and sold um, off the property. And then what I had designed, I, I had envisaged was I was going to put two freehold townhouses to the front and then eight body corporate or you know ones to the back. And uh, that's, and then I'd sell the front to for more of a premium because they were on the street quite a bit from the rail. And then the ones along the rail, they would sell for a you know, more affordable pricing. So that was how I was, um, I had envisaged it working. And at the time, I remember the bank ended up, well, you know, we had no experience, I had no experience and we hadn't costed in the GST and I remember having a conversation with my bank manager and he said, well, who's paying the GST? And I said, well, I'm not, I haven't got it. And he said, well, we're going to have to then. <laughs> Whereas obviously years later, that would never, ever, ever happen. <laughs> but, but back in the days, it was just one of those, it was, the timing was quite lucky so that um, someone like myself with virtually no experience, but with a lot of research and I guess I could talk my way through it to the banks to sell it to the banks. Um, I had the ability to then go for it and I had to use all our all our property, you know, our, our home, uh, we borrowed against everything we had. So that's where we really had to put our money where our mouth is and that's where I had to get my husband's blessing to say, well, if we lose, we lose it all, right? Um, and essentially on that one, I ended up going with a builder that I knew and trusted. Um, the, that was the good news. The bad news was he had a foreman that wasn't trustworthy and, um, you know, he was losing money on that job and the foreman wasn't turning up and he was selling air conditioning <laughs> units through other vehicles. It was really quite dodgy. But um, in the end, and so the build was delayed, 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 delayed. And I remember thinking, is this ever going to end? And then eventually we finished it and we are just in time to release into the global financial crisis. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, here we go. But I ended up selling the front two and I sold them and we, we made the profit that we expected and we refinanced the back and then eventually went on to sell them. But that actual project meant that after three years of living hand-to-mouth, eating baked beans and just having to, just to really really be mindful about 
I, I was working a full-time job plus managing this project on the side and my husband was working and we had three small children. It was a really heady time. But when we got to the end of it, I remember we had sold the front to pretty much paid down the majority of the remaining debt, refinanced against the rest, and we were financially, I remember the bank said, you're financially free. You know, this is, you know, and we could have just held those units and really had a nice steady income and not replaced a wage forever. Um, and so I remember thinking, wow, this property gig is amazing. That is amazing. And it felt almost um, like being in a really dark place for several years and then suddenly getting to the end and the light, the, we came through that tunnel and we could see the light and I suddenly, and then that really took off my property development career. So I went on to build about $42 million worth of property over the next 10 years during school hours while the kids were at school. And um, and that and that's sort of what the game I played. So that really um, gave me the confidence and courage for my, you know, and for investors as they began investing with me in the early days, they uh, were sophisticated investors and they knew of my level of experience. And so, you know, some of their returns and some of the projects were a 65% annualised return in compensation for them trusting me before I had the runs on the board. And then once I got the runs on the board, I got more sophisticated in the way I could structure it so that I wasn't paying as much money for money. And that, you know, and that's often the trade-off you have to make between experience and and trust. Throughout the time that Fitzgerald Baker was developing $42 million worth of properties, she stuck to a strategy of taking one step at a time. Yeah, I did everything from four packs to 12 packs to up to 30 units in, in a block um, and I, I used my intuition to be able to anticipate what the market wasn't currently seeing enough of yet and building to that. And then I only did one development at a time. I found, I did try, I did go through a period where I'd do multiple, but I found for me, particularly was the risk. I, and I just wanted to give all my time, care and attention to one at a time. And that worked really well for me. And then just basically carefully stepping once, not getting ahead of myself. And not getting caught up in it because when you're in property development, it can be it really can become you, you really go into it. I went into it for lifestyle, Tyrone. I went into it because I was very mindful of the world I wanted to create for me and my family. And the level the pink hard hat is a metaphor for insulation, you know, to insulate yourself. When you go onto a work site, you wear a hard hat to protect what's important. And you wear a high vis vest to stay feasible and steel cap boots to give you confidence to wherever you want to walk on the site. And my message to women is Wear the hat, stay visible in your relationships and be confident enough to walk freely in constructing the life that you want to design. And I think that essentially, you know, from, from, from that side, it's about mindfully creating the world you want to be in rather than just getting caught in the hamster wheel of, oh, I finished a deal, now I'll throw all my money into the next deal and then you almost heave into the next deal and cannot enjoy it. So I was really deliberate about starting a project, loving the project, you know, really enjoying the design and what I was going to create 
I would celebrate the end of a project with a, with a great party and invite everyone that was part of it and we would almost burst the project. And then I would celebrate with my family because it can often be a long time between drinks. It could be three years and sometimes you get to the end of that three years and you didn't make money. And sometimes you did and the ship would come in very well. And sometimes it was just a small boat, but we would just say, right, what are we going to do with that? And then I was very mindful about enjoying those times because I didn't want to be one of those people that just went, oh, one deal, done. Now the next deal, now the next deal. Because then why are we doing it? You know, then we've just become, we're just in a job then. (laughs) We know we just bought ourselves a job. You know, the whole reason... You, the whole reason we we choose this vehicle, much like any other vehicle, whether it be direct selling or whatever it is, is because we want to we want a lifestyle and we want money working for us, not us working for money to the point where where we forget to enjoy what what the whole point is, you know. Taking things one step at a time is the advice that Fitzgerald Baker hopes to pass on to others. Take it one day at a time, one step at a time. Don't get too ahead of yourself. And enjoy the journey along the way would probably be it. And don't compare yourself to what others are doing. Just keep your own, keep your blinkers on so that you stay in your own lane. We all have a lane on this highway and we all have different cars and we're all going at different speeds. And some of us pull over and others are speeding along. And it can be easy to be distracted. Um, at what others are doing and how fast they're going and the car they're driving. But I would just say stay in your own lane and be mindful of the pace you want to go at and the vehicle you want to use and be part of and 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 the music you play while you're doing it. So really just be at peace with that and surround yourself with people that are doing that already. Today with podcasts like yours and Instagram and Facebook groups and everything. You've got so much more at your fingertips than I had growing, you know, growing in this business. Mm. And people are way more reachable than they used to be. So use that to your advantage, but without becoming overwhelmed. While taking a break from property development, Fitzgerald Baker continued building success in other areas. You know, I've actually stepped aside from the property for this mark for this time in the market because I often work within a within a radius of where I live so that I can be intimately involved with the deals rather than working interstate because I'm bringing up a family as well. And so for me, the risk became disproportionate to the return for the area that I was working with unless I decided to move into a different asset class and just do house and land developments or something slightly different and I didn't want to move into a different avenue. And also my, my stage of life changed, you know, so I'm now at a point where I thought, no, I really want to go into cash flow positive businesses and opportunities that have virtually no risk. And so I change, I've changed what I'm doing next. So in regards to that, I wrote the book, The Pink Hard Hat, Building the Resilient Woman. And that's really the story of generational resilience across the three generations of women in my family. And my mother is one story I've shared with you today. But there was also, it started with my grandmother and then it goes on. And then I've got three daughters and how I'm teaching, educating and equipping them to grow into this world and know and understand and use money as a teammate. Um, so the book itself was about generational resilience, money 101, 
and how to recover your position when life deals you a blow you didn't expect and then how in raising the next generation what are we doing so i wrote that book and then have seen in the last year we we launched that in february national australia bank launched the book and i've been speaking and doing a lot of uh speaking to corporates and companies about really uh, leadership growth uh financial contribution women's roles in that and all of those pockets so that's really been an area that i'm working with now virtual franchising Um, and other income streams, particularly I have a heart for helping women uh, make a financial contribution while, you know, as their life shifts and changes. So that's been a real passion for me. And I guess, you know, in the future, so I still have property. I've now stepped back into a silent, more investing role, both residentially and commercially, and just sit and and wait the market out until it becomes more compelling and irresistible to play. And then um, when I do go back into it, it will be in a different space. I anticipate it will be more around tiny housing and uh, housing for pockets of the community that are not currently accommodated with great dignity. So the fastest growing homeless demographic in this country is women over 55 and that's really alarming and scary for me to to see and I can't really sit by and watch that. So I'm really certain that my future will my future will involve somehow and um, being part of a solution for that demographic so that they can age with dignity in places that they're proud to be in. As well as her own book, Fitzgerald Baker encourages the value of other resources. Well, the Property Investor magazine, obviously my my brother's book, which is Seven Steps to Wealth, he's uh, amazing and has written that book. That's a great one um, and is all about, you know, buildings uh, don't appreciate but land does. Um, For me, Property Investor magazine was useful because it showed a lot of people doing the deals that I was wanting to do and it gave the numbers. And at the time, I was hungry for that detail to know I'd be okay. So wherever you can get access to information that is an open book on the numbers as well. I think Barefoot Investor was a great book as well. Um, Really enjoyed that. And because it, it, it sort of simplifies the journey of just one step ahead at a time and also know know what financial abundance is for you. It may not be a big house. Some of us can be overcommitted with that. It might be the simplicity of knowing that you're going to be okay, you've got your house paid off as humble as it is and you're able to travel and be present with your kids. There's so much in that and the older I get, the more I realise the importance of that, that it's not about money and wealth because that's the whole point. Then you know when you can leave. Then you can step get elegantly away and say, I've had enough, thank you. I'm ready to play a different game. I'm ready to do something else. And I, my whole identity is not tied up with this deal or being necessarily a property developer. It's okay because I'm reinventing myself for my next chapter. In order to find success, Fitzgerald Baker pushes the importance of having a daily routine. I do the same things every day. I think consistency is helpful in a world that can be strategic and change quickly. And so for me to keep, I had to work out what helps me keep a cool head 
And so for me, it's little things. I, I wake up at a certain hour, I make sure I run seven or eight Ks, I put my headphones in and I'm listening to positive, uplifting music or podcasts or information. Um, I come home, I clean the house until 8.30, which sounds really strange, but and then I go to work. I take a cup of tea and hopefully I don't spill it on my keyboard and I go to work <laughs> and I go to work and then I literally work until um, the, the children finish school and then I have time and space with them and go into the evening being available to the kids. And it sounds like a really strange way of talking even about housework, but what I actually found was if I contained those aspects within a day, I could return to a home that was ordered and everything, it just seemed to me that I could cope with anything. When the house was organised, everything was ordered, I could build wealth between school hours and then create a nice home as well, which sounds really old-fashioned now I'm saying it out loud, but that's that's what's worked for me, those little habits of making sure I was contained, the house was contained, everything else was running smoothly, and then whatever happened in the business between those hours, I could manage it. That's how it worked for me. Cheryl Baker shares what she would say to herself 10 years ago, which may be helpful for those at the start of their own property investment journey. Enjoy the ride, girlfriend. (laughs) Um, Multiple income streams. Uh, That's really the big lesson for me. And that's what I'm teaching my girls. My daughters are now 19 and 17 and for them, I've already got them learning about multiple income streams, learn to generate income from multiple stations in life so that, you know, as you evolve and become parents and become whatever it is next, that that money doesn't ever become something that you feel is going to hold you back, that you've got that magic superpower that you can generate income in whatever you're doing and that's what I teach my kids so that they're confident as they navigate their way through life and they never feel beholden and they're never in a situation or a job or a relationship where they're feeling less because financially they can't squeeze out of it. Last probably question is how much of your success do you think is because of your skill and intelligence and hard work and how much of it is because of luck? You know what, there really is an element of luck in this. I would love to say it's all about your skill and intelligence and hard work, but property is a game and sometimes you just need a little bit of luck or God or universe or whatever you want to call it because there are times where, and there's an element where it's out of your control and it's difficult to put a proportion to it. I I really come from the places, I do, I, I do think... If you have the personality, personality is another part, like skill and intelligence and is one thing. But to be honest, I think it's as much about discipline, your personality, tenacity and just, yeah, I think if you've got the discipline, personality and tenacity, then no matter what life will dish up, whether it's the 2011 floods, whether it's the 2009 GFC, whether it's the war on terror, in a couple of years ago when, you know, husband leaves stage left, whatever it is that life dishes up, you've got the wherewithal to grow through it and not implode. And that is really a function of discipline, tenacity and personality. 
Thank you to Louise Fitzgerald Baker, our guest on this episode of Property Investory. If you love the show, perhaps you're now ready to invest your money in a low-risk, high-return deal. If you are, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a lender. There are amazing opportunities in the property market right now and I'm looking for lenders who want to invest their money for as short as 6 months. What are you waiting for? Don't let your money just sit in the bank. To register your interest, text me your name and email address on 0499881040. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tapiphone. 